good there? There we go. Okay. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series. It's not going to be a long series, probably around four weeks, um, give or take a week. Um, more likely give a week, but um, four to five weeks, probably. Uh, we're going to be talking about how we got the Bible. Uh, most of us, hopefully all of us, but, but at least most of us consider the Bible God's Word, and it is God's Word. Uh, but many of us have not considered how it came to be. How do we have the Bible? Uh, how do we get the Bible? As we consider um, how we have in our hands this book that we go to on Sunday mornings together and hopefully uh, on our own throughout the week, how do we get that? If you're here and remember last summer, we did a series through ancient creeds, learning about what uh, orthodoxy is and how it came to be, how it was passed along to us, how we have core doctrines that were passed down to us over centuries, and what a gift that is for uh, us, to us, for our faith and life in Christ. And I'm hopeful um, that this series will be helpful to you in the same way that that was, I hope, helpful to you. And as we get into it, I want to give you some disclaimers. One primary disclaimer. At times, this series may seem like um, a lecture more than a sermon in parts of the sermon. I'm not saying that to apologize. I'm just preparing you, okay? Um, I truly believe the things we're going to be talking through are very important. So I'm not, I'm not apologizing, just preparing. My hope is that it is to help you in your interest and love for the Scriptures. And I hope to give you help in how to approach the Bible. Because here's the thing, and we're going to talk about this over and over throughout the coming weeks. If you have your Bible with you, if you have uh, this with you, maybe you use your phone, and that is totally fine, okay? Um, because it's not this book uh, bound the way it is that is the Word of God. Um, so it's okay if you use your phone. But if you have uh, a physical Bible, go ahead and take it in your hand. What do you have there? You can go along with this if you have your phone as well. What do you have? The truth is you don't have a book. It's far from a book. You and I have a library that we hold in our hands when we hold the Bible. The Bible is not just a book. It is a library of books, many books describing the origins of the Hebrew people, describes the person and work of Jesus Christ and His coming to this earth, describes the spread of the Christian church, and its central character through all of that is God. God who creates. God who rescues rebels. God who becomes human. God who makes all things new. And as we go through this, whether it feels like a sermon at times or a lecture at times, that is 100% where we are headed in this series. We are headed toward the main character, Jesus, throughout it. God in the flesh. This and this alone is the purpose of the Bible. 
The Bible is a mixture of history and literature and theology. You find in the Bible ancient Near Eastern creation stories. You have Bronze Age law codes, historical narratives, Hebrew poetry, Greco-Roman biography, ancient Greek historiography, and then genres of the Bible that we're going to talk about later on. And that's a lot. I'll say this again and again throughout. It's crucial that we understand what we have when we go to the Scriptures. There's, there's no book that has influenced the politics, history, art, literature, music, and culture of Western civilization as much as the Bible, good or bad. That's why it's so important that we understand what we have in the Bible and how we got the Bible. This is important, maybe surprising to you. The Bible is very hard to understand at times. Not because it's a book of mystery, not because it's a book of magic, not because it's mayhem, rather because it contains a history distant from our own. The Bible was originally written to ancient audiences in particular context. And and yes, it was written for us, but it was not written to us. That's why I've been trying to stress over the past years how important it is to read the Word in the context in which it was written. Hopefully that makes sense. If If I read Galatians, I'm going to do the work of seeking to know who Paul is writing to. What's the context in which he's writing? What's the purpose of what what he is writing? We do that so that I'm not presuming that the letter is about me. If If I go to the Psalms, I want to understand how many years, literally thousands of years between the psalmist, uh, when the psalmist wrote it, and, and when I'm reading that. And that means something. And so I should approach it with the kind of humility that says, David or whoever else wrote that particular psalm didn't write this to me. Now don't get me wrong, we're going to talk about what it means to us and for us as we go throughout each of these, but with the right perspective. So let's get to the text that we're going to be in today and work through that as we look at what the Bible is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 12 to start, so go ahead and turn there, and, and even though it's just one verse, once you get there, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace today. God, I ask for Your help as we go through this series, Lord, today. And in the coming weeks, Lord, I pray that you'd help. 
that you'd help us with our thoughts and our intentions as we approach the Bible. As we look at your word, Lord, that we would we'd be looking at it the right way and for the right reasons. And looking for the right thing. And that we'd find you through it, Lord. That you'd lead us to you. And that you'd be glorified in our hearts as we work through all of this. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. Now, what is the writer of Hebrews saying here? And let me mention here, because this is just a hint at one of the things we're going to talk about. We don't even know who wrote this book in the Bible. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, if you have an answer in your head, right? Maybe right now you're, well, I think Paul wrote it, or I think Barnabas wrote it, or I think so-and-so. You don't know, okay? No one knows. We just don't know. And so, if we get to heaven and we find out that whoever's name is in your head is right, it's just because you guessed right, okay? You don't know. We weren't told. We didn't find out. And that's okay. It's okay that that we don't know who the writer is. I used to be so sure of myself that it was Paul. That was dumb. That's just a dumb way for a pastor to be. It's a proud and mistaken way of handling the Bible. It's making the Bible about me, about what I know or what I don't know. And that is not why we have the Bible. I'm sure I still do that in a number of ways, but in this way, I've laid that down. I don't know who wrote Hebrews. Scholars of the Bible, all of whom are smarter than me, agree that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But whether we know the author or not, whoever wrote it said that the Word of God is living and it is active. Now, what does that mean as we consider the Bible? And first of all, is that what the writer is referring to? When, when the writer here says the Word of God, do they mean what we mean when we say the Word of God? Do they mean the Scriptures? Because we also know from the Bible that Jesus himself, the Christ, is referred to as the Word of God. You see that in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There are some who read Hebrews 4.12 and would apply it to Jesus and say, Jesus is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and, and I disagree with that. I think uh, what we have here is a reference in Hebrews not speaking of Jesus, but a general reference to God's message to human beings. God's message to human beings is four things according to the writer of Hebrews. That His message is living, that His message is active, that His message is able to penetrate to the soul and spirit, and that God's message is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, that is incredible. If, if we just considered that as we considered what the Bible is, that is weighty. And 
truly this is why we want to do this study. His message, God's message to humans is living. It's alive. In other words, His word to us, His message to us is not dead, but it's able to do things. It's able to accomplish whatever it intends to accomplish. God's word is able to do that. And then it keeps working and working and working. Here we are thousands of years after some of the Bible is written. And it's still working. It's still living. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, quoting Isaiah, says that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Why? Because it's alive. Not just that, but the writer says that God's message to humans is active. Now, that term active is almost synonymous with the word that we have here for living. It's saying that his message is not something that you passively hear and then ignore. But if we are listening, if we're gazing, that it works in our lives actively. It changes us. It sends us then into action. It does something. Not just that, but God's message is able to penetrate to the soul and spirit. It can penetrate even what seems to be impenetrable. You think Saul, whose soul is suddenly penetrated with the message of the gospel and he's radically changed and then writes much of what we have in our New Testament. And fourth, God's message is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, it's able to judge my thoughts and my intentions. We may think certain things are secret and hidden, but God's message is able to convict. This is true of God's message and truly only of God's message with the work of the Holy Spirit through it. When the Spirit is working through God's message to humans, these four things are true in a person. That it is alive, it is active. But I want us to consider throughout this series as we think about this text in Hebrews 4 and uh, any other text that we're going to look at, what does that mean? Because as I mentioned already and will continue to mention, the Bible is a library written over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years by authors from different demographics. And those authors write into different contexts for different reasons. And there's different genres throughout the Bible. So how is it all living and all active and how does it work to pierce soul and spirit and divide thoughts and intentions? To get us started in this, I want to take some time today and talk about different literary genres in the Bible. Now, we could do three big genres that kind of give an umbrella over the Bible. Larger categories of narrative, poetry, and prose discourse. Narrative, the narrative genre of the Bible is 43% of what we have in the Bible. 
That's a lot. Poetry takes up 33%. And then prose discords, everything else is 24% of the Bible. I think that's helpful to have those big categories, but I think it can be more helpful to break that down into more categories. So that's what we're going to do through this and just talk about what we have in the Bible, what the Bible is and how it's broken down. The first is narrative. Now, big genre narrative would include uh, things including the Gospels, but that's how we're breaking it down. We're going to separate the Gospels into its own later on. Almost half of the Bible that we have is narrative. Stories. That's so important because stories help us consider concepts and understand concepts and the world that we live in better. You might think if you were just to be asked that most of my Bible is um, like reading Galatians or reading James or reading um, one of the other epistles that, that Paul or Jude or whoever wrote, right? But most of it is story. When things in life feel random and confusing, stories can help us and train us to understand life and those things better. Now, obviously, a good story involves a character or more than one character. And this is so important as we approach how we come to the Bible and what the Bible is and how we seek to understand what it is because we tend to look at the characters in the Bible and learn how we are to live. And honestly, we started doing that back in Sunday school. When we, if you're as old as I am, then you had flannel graph. If you're not, I don't know what you had. But you would see these characters on the flannel graph or you hear these stories depicted in VBS or in Sunday school and your, your thought is, I want to be more like him. But as I've tried to mention over and over here, that's not the point. In fact, very often, it's the opposite of the point of the story. Most of the characters in the narratives we read are very deeply flawed, offensively flawed. And you and I should not be like them. That includes the heroes that we've learned about growing up or just reading on our own. They're flawed because they're human. And so instead of looking at them and saying, I wish I was more like Solomon or I wish I was more like Daniel or I wish I was more like so-and-so, we ought to see ourselves in them already in their flaws We want to see our own lives and our own failures from a biblical perspective. Because our eyes were not created to gaze upon Daniel. Narratives can be helpful in transforming me into beginning to see myself and the world, those around me and far from me, in a new light or from a different perspective. But my eyes are meant for someone else. Now within 
the genre of narrative are some sub-genres like law and history. And law is, is pretty straightforward. I think we all know what law is. Much of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is law with more law spread throughout the Scriptures. History tells the narrative of a particular people from the author's perspective. And so you have different historical stories through the Bible from a different perspective, and and at times it looks completely different because it's a different person giving the perspective on the same history. So that's narrative, and it is living, and it is active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce, and it's able to discern. Then we have a a, a genre of poetry in the Bible. Poetry speaks through more dense and creative language. Often poetry pulls together different images to help us see the world in a different way. Again, this is important because Poetry doesn't just tell you what to do or tell you how to think. There's different types of poetry in the Bible. There's songs or psalms. There are poems that we find in wisdom literature, but also poems that we find in the prophets. And we have to remember here, this is not modern poetry. We don't go to the psalms and think we're reading Taylor Swift. It is radically, completely different. It doesn't read that way. It's not straightforward like that. It's not meant to be straightforward like that. Ancient Hebrew poetry is deep and needs to be thought through. Hebrew poetry employs different means to get the point across. And often the Psalms communicate emotion way more than they communicate ideas. Poetry in the Scriptures is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to pierce and able to discern, but not in the same way as narrative. Just as effectively but we don't read it the same way. We don't approach it in the same way that we read narrative. And then we come to wisdom literature. That includes books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Proverbs is a book of many wise sayings that are meant to offer advice for different types of situations. You consider this when reading the Bible. Proverbs and other wisdom literature are Proverbs. They're not the same as narrative and are not the same as poetry. And, and, and what I mean by that is if, if you read or if I read, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In the same way that I read some other things in the Bible, I'm going to have a very difficult time in life. Maybe, and hopefully, I'm not going to have a difficult time because my son or sons walk away from the Lord. But maybe that is wise. Even if the Lord is gracious and they walk faithfully with Him and they don't depart from it, 
some sons and daughters of faithful parents that I know will. And I won't have the humility or grace to look at them with love rather than with judgment because I'm thinking, well, they must not have trained up their child in the way that he should go. If you know a, a, a child or a teen or a older who, who grows up and remains faithful to the Lord, it's because of the Lord. It's, it's the Lord's grace. It's because of His faithfulness. That's not the point of Proverbs. You consider for a moment two verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and verse 5. Okay? Verse 4 and verse 5 of Proverbs 26 say this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Wait, what? Lord, you know me. I need direction. I need to know what to do. Am I answering a fool in his folly, or am I not answering a fool in his folly? It takes wisdom. That's the point of Proverbs. It takes wisdom. And circumstances are going to vary. And a fool is a fool. We can't read Proverbs the same way that we read narrative. And yet, Proverbs is living. And it is active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces. And, and it helps us discern our thoughts and our intentions. The next genre we have is prophecy. Prophecy often takes the form of oracles or visions. It appears in several of the Old Testament books. Much of prophecy employs language and vocabulary that is symbolic. And that makes it not straightforward and difficult to interpret. Some of these refer to future events that are yet to be fulfilled, either in our own lifetime or centuries later. Some prophecies refer to things which have already happened in the past. Other prophecies still seem to refer to events which may be fulfilled in multiple ways at various times throughout history. And that's why we want to be very humble when we approach prophecy in the Bible, because some of the prophecies can become hills that we're willing to die on, and they should not be. When reading the Bible, we ought to read Old Testament prophetic books as God's challenge to the original audiences, and then we apply that then to our own lives. So we don't read prophecy the same as we read other genres. We have different expectations even as we know that it's living and it's active. So we have the Gospels. Gospels are what? They're narrative. So they could be under the literary genre of narrative. They 
probably should be, but because of their purpose, they're sometimes kept in a separate category. And certainly because of the purpose of this study, we want to have it on its own. The Gospels are the four books that tell the stories of Jesus' life on earth. They tell of His teachings, the things that He did while He was here. The Gospels help us to make sense of the rest of the Bible. And so they should be kept separate. Remember the central character of this library of books we call the Bible is God. And He revealed Himself in the person of Jesus. He came to us. And so if we want to make sense of all the rest of the Bible, we need the Gospels. We need the stories of the life of Jesus. And we approach them to observe Jesus. We come to the Gospels to gaze at Jesus. And we know that the Gospels are living and active. That the Gospels are sharper than any two-edged sword, that they're piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and that we can see Jesus, and we can learn what He's like. And so we don't read the Gospels the same way as we read the Psalms, or we read Proverbs. Then we come to the genre of epistles, or teaching. New Testament contains a number of letters, epistles, written by various apostles such as Paul and Peter or John to different audiences. These are usually churches in a particular region or specific individuals. And so, we ought to think of epistles or letters this way. When you turn to a letter from Paul or the letter from James or Jude or whoever it is, you ought to think this when you start reading. I'm reading someone else's mail. That's what we should be thinking. These letters contain teaching and doctrine. They explain and elaborate on truths of the Gospels and other parts of the Old Testament. Paul, for example, will often set things into their proper context. Certainly we saw that in Galatians. It helps to explain how we understand certain events in the Old Testament. We saw in Galatians how Paul was explaining to that particular church how things ought to be and how they were turning from the gospel and rejecting Christ by misreading or misunderstanding the Bible. And so that's very good and helpful for us to remember that a misunderstanding or a misreading of the Bible can lead us in a wrong direction. So we, we come to these letters thinking, I'm reading someone else's mail first and foremost. And so we've, we look to see what was this written for? What's the context that it's written in? Who's it written to? What's the issues that are going on that this is addressing? Instead of immediately saying, how does this affect me. And then lastly, we have the genre of apocalypse. 
Apocalypse contains far more symbolism than the usual prophetic writings. It is prophetic writing. It could be under that category, but we're going to keep it separate simply because of, of how the symbolism in it is different. Parts of Daniel fall into this category, certainly the book of Revelation. We must understand that symbolism is symbolism. It's not straightforward. Apocalyptic writing is filled with visions and images that point to Jesus' Jesus's return as the ultimate king, where he's going to restore his people and usher in the new creation. And the, the promise of that motivates every single generation of God's people to remain faithful in the midst of persecution and hardship. Ultimately, Revelation is a letter written to seven churches as both encouragement and challenge, and it uses visions and symbolic imagery to offer a glimpse of God's plan of a new creation. As we read it, we ought to remember that. We ought to remember that every single generation, everyone, since the time that it was written, has thought, this is it. This is it. This is the time that Jesus is coming back. Every single generation has had things happening that they apply to the book of Revelation or some of Matthew even or, or Daniel and, and will say, this is finally it. And that's good and helpful to encourage us to remain faithful in the midst of perse persecution and hardship. But it's, it's really, really, really hard to understand. Just as it was hard to understand for John, who didn't, didn't understand what he was seeing and writing. And even as it's difficult to understand, it's still living and it's still active. It's still sharper than any two-edged sword. It still pierces to divide soul and spirit. It still discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so what does all this mean when we ask, what is the Bible? As we have these different genres. Well, the Bible is a library of books. And we need to use wisdom when reading it. And wisdom leads us to not be proud. We have an issue of pride so often when we open the Bible. The Bible is written for me, but it wasn't written to me. And that should affect the way that I approach it with humility. I'm not going to go to every page and say, tell me what to do today, Lord, because the purposes are different throughout the pages of the Scriptures. And that goes for every one of the genres. There are things that are not written to me. And in fact, we're going to get into this. There's things that are not written for me. They're helpful to me, and they're for me to learn from, but they're not for me. 
there's things maybe like that comment that are going to make you uncomfortable as we go through this series, and that's okay. There's things that we need more understanding in the scriptures for us. There's things that meant something in ancient Israel that it don't mean today. But all the things are meant to point to Jesus. The Bible is the story and stories of Jesus. The King who will make all things new. And in that, it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And also, as we approach it, even in the, the, the difficulty of understanding, we can know that it is true. Jesus Himself, when He's praying in, in John 17, 17, in the midst of praying for us, the, the, the disciples who are yet to come, to sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. God's word is truth. Now we're going to dig into that more in the coming weeks. What does it mean that God's word is truth? And what does it mean that it is living and active? But we can trust Jesus' words that it is true. That as we read, no matter the genre, that, is, that this truth is living and active. It is doing something in us if we come to it with humility. The primary truth of the Bible is the message that Jesus came and died for our sins and was raised. As we go into a time where we're going to take the Lord's Supper, we we want to remember that that's not just a message that we read. It's a message that we rehearse. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he goes back to talking about the upper room with Jesus and the apostles, the disciples. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's graciously given us this message of Jesus that's not just a message we read, but it's a message we rehearse again and again and again and again and again. And we, we proclaim it to those in our homes. We proclaim it to those we come in contact with and build relationships with. And we proclaim it to one another in different ways. And one of the ways that we've been gifted to do that is through the taking of the bread and the cup. That as often as we eat the bread that symbolizes his broken body for us, and as often as we drink the cup that symbolizes his blood that was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible tells us as often as we do those things, we proclaim to each other his death until he comes, as we continue to wait and wait and wait for his arrival. What a blessing that is. 
is a blessing that we have this gift that because we're human, because we're frail, because we're weak, we get used to doing it. Just like we get used to reading the Bible if we get into this routine and, and we don't humbly come before it. And so today, as we are going to go into a time where we take the bread and the cup, let's do so humbly. Let's, let's genuinely think, as we're going to sing in a moment, and, and, and you're going to come forward and get the bread and cup and then go back to your seats and wait. Let's genuinely think. There's a means of gospel proclamation that Jesus' body was broken, that His blood was shed, and that He's coming again, that we get to do to remind one another we believe. We believe God's message to humans. And we trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. You're good. Everything You do is good, Lord. And we're frail. We're weak. We have limited understanding, Lord. And we're grateful that you have given us your message in, in words that we can see and hear. But we also confess there's things that we don't know. We don't understand all of it. And we want to be people who humbly come before you and come before your word as you have given it to us in a way that is not all-knowing. That we're your people. Your sheep. That we need to be led and guided. Directed where to go. And at no point do we want to take up the staff, as, we, as if we are the good shepherd, Lord. As if we understand and know where we're going fully. We don't. And so help us, as we go through this study, help us to be humble. Help me to be humble in, in the things that I study and in the things that I articulate. Help us to be humble together, Lord, as we consider you and what you've entrusted to us. Be glorified, I pray, through all of it. As we take the bread and take the cup here in a few minutes, be glorified, Lord. There's no greater message than the one we are about to proclaim. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.